This is Wayne Jernell, editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators and the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Dan, I don't know if this is a, a real memory, but I remember being a kid and like, you know, my parents would take me down to the, you know, the center of town and there'd be a lot of people on soapboxes and they would just be spouting their opinion about, I don't know what's going on in, in the town or in, in, the, in the state or in the country or in the world. It, it was really neat. Did you ever have that experience or, or do you know what I'm talking about? Or did I just make this up? The first thing we're going to have to come back to is that you don't know which memories are real and which ones are made up in your head. We'll come back to that later. Yeah. But yeah, no, we didn't have like a town crier or necessarily a bunch of soapboxes and ways that people were able to espouse their opinions. I guess that's the way it was done back in the day. I'm starting to wonder if you like time traveled and grew up in like the 1700s. How do people have so many soapboxes? Like these people are buying soap by the crate. Yeah. At least people who want to say something. Yeah. I, well, it is. And we need to look at the roots of that too. Like, was it, they're just a proliferation of soapboxes. So they were like the best things to stand on. And why soapboxes? Is that, I don't know. I guess maybe if it was in like the, the fifties, the 1950s, it might be milk crates. That might've been the mm -hmm. thing. Then again, I'm basing this on absolutely nothing except <laughs> that I imagine people delivered milk because I, I think I read that somewhere. As people who've taught history, this is a very disappointing start. we have done no background research and have no information on the soapbox phenomenon. But I think your main point you're getting out here is how do we talk in public spaces, right? I mean, how do we share and get into public issues in public spaces, which is a big issue for social studies teachers, right? Oh, absolutely. And I'm so glad you're able to parse that out. <laughs> Michael, I've, we've talked on a lot of episodes. I kind of am starting to sense where you're going with things. I don't know, how in your classroom did you get students to be able to understand how to talk beyond just with friends or family, but in public spaces? Schools are the opportunity to start meeting with other people that you wouldn't necessarily be connected with in other ways and to start talking about issues that are important for our society. In class, like, you know, sometimes we have like structured conversations where students read an article, they read a few articles, and then they get together and they they just talk like they lead a discussion themselves. And I kind of sit there and I I watch the conversation and we talk about it afterwards, how it went and in what made some arguments better than others. And then I would be able to bring in like specific things that I thought worked really well. And that way it would become kind of a model for going forward. So that was something that I've done in my classroom. As for in the public sphere, outside of my classroom, that's something that I know that we kind of talked a little bit about with Wes Fryer way back in episode mm -hmm. three with Inside Outside Sharing. I don't know, what are your thoughts on this? There's been some really good work in the social studies. We recently had on, on our CUFA NCSS conference episode, we had Diana Hess on, who's been doing a lot of work on how you discuss controversial public issues, which she also sent me a Christmas card, which I did not expect. That was very nice. That um, is very I, nice. I guess since we had her on. And, and so she's done really good work. And I, I remember having great discussions in class. And my students, I would often get us in a circle. So we all had to yeah, kind of yeah. look at each other. There was no distractions. And we would discuss articles we read, other things. And I remember that going really well. But 
things have changed even since when I was teaching. Last time I was in the classroom was 2011. And oh, things have changed. I mean, social media was around them, but I don't think it was used in, in the ways it's being used now. Schools don't often change quickly and our society is changing really quickly. And it means that we need to catch up quick and help students learn not just to talk in circles in a classroom on soapboxes, but maybe even <laughs> online, right? Yeah, no, that sounds like a good thing. If only there was someone who we could have <laughs> on today to discuss, I don't know, something about online civic reasoning. Per our tradition, we brought on someone who is far smarter than us and knows way more on this topic and has many soapboxes. That's an assumption, but I would think she has many soapboxes. So we'd like to welcome onto the podcast, Sarah McGrew. Hey guys, hey. thanks for having me. <laughs> We're delighted to have you on, Sarah. Sarah, the first and most important question is, do you have any soapboxes? <laughs> if I did, they didn't make the move with me to California, unfortunately. <laughs> I have to ask I, my mom if there's any hiding, hiding out in Michigan. I feel like you could actually pack stuff in a soapbox and then bring it with you. Like, that <laughs> you would have been good. It clearly like, wasn't obviously. that smart. <laughs> Sarah, could you tell our audience a little bit about your background in education? Sure. So I'm a PhD student in history, social studies, education at Stanford, uh, where I work with Professor Sam Weinberg and the Stanford History Education Group. But I've always loved both politics and history. When I was in college, I thought I wanted a career in politics, actually. And luckily, looking back, I came to my senses and decided to be a social studies teacher instead. But I've always been really interested in the civic role that social studies classrooms play. And I ended up teaching world history at a high school in Washington, D.C., whose mission was to support students to be active participants in their communities and in politics. So I had to both teach world history content and historical thinking skills, but also help students make connections to the modern world and to recognize how the skills that they were learning in my class were applicable beyond the walls of the classroom, right, and particularly applicable to their lives as citizens. So I moved to California and started graduate school really with a lot of the questions about that I had when I was teaching, right? How could I do a better job doing what I was doing at teaching history and social studies and then helping my students make connections to the world outside and to their lives as, as civic actors. And those questions aligned really well with the direction that the Stanford History Education Group that Shegg was starting to move towards thinking about how people evaluate social and political information online. So before I came here, Shegg, as you guys know, was researching and designing what I think, not biased at all, are really great resources for teaching and assessing historical thinking. And they're reading like a historian curriculum and beyond the bubble assessments. Our goal with those materials, though, has never been to prepare an army of historians, right? We don't expect all students to go get their PhDs in history. Actually, we, we think that the skills that Reading Like a Historian teaches are the skills that students need in their lives as citizens. So for the last few years, I like to think that we've been sort of putting our money where our mouth was <laughs> and investigating how students evaluate information about the modern world in the place we know students look for it, and that's the internet. We definitely agree that the Stanford History Education Group puts out great materials, and that's why if anyone wants to go back on episode 25, we had Joel Breakstone on who talked about the resources and work that Stanford's doing, which is provides a great model for scholars to figure out how to make sure your research is applicable. It's a great model where the research is done and then there's curriculum materials and assessments that are produced. So it's, it's such a fantastic site and a really well organized. One thing you said that I, I definitely disagree with, I think we do need armies of historians <laughs> just because I feel like that would be the most amazing, like 
Could you imagine all of the elbow patches that you would see? <laughs> it's true. There's already, there's already sort of a career crisis among pe people with PhDs in history, though, I feel like. I don't know if we need armies. It would be amazing. <laughs> it would be. And we, we could get an answer to the soapbox question, for sure. Yes! That's <laughs> what we need. Army of historians, if you're out there, please. I think it'd be a far better battle too, right? Like the historians would just like walk up to the other side and ask them if they can look at some artifacts from their like personal belongings and try to piece together their family history. Be much, be much better way to do battle. By the way, in a previous episode, Michael also advocated for young children to dress up as Indiana Jones and be archaeologists. Is that correct? <laughs> that is absolutely correct. And I stand by that as I do this. I apologize for, for taking us off on this, but army of historians, you couldn't leave that hanging. <laughs> Some teachers struggle when they're teaching a topic like world history and they're maybe teaching about ancient civilizations or they're teaching about the Renaissance, you know, that seems so distant from today. How do you think as a teacher you were able to make connections between the historical curriculum, the skills stu students were developing and what they do as civic citizens in our contemporary times? And I should say that I taught modern world history, so my job was potentially easier than those folks who teach ancient. But for me, the through lines were really through concepts and through the skills that I was teaching. So trying to think about sort of enduring conceptual tensions and understandings that students were developing and helping them see those in the modern world. And then through the skills. So I was teaching historical thinking skills, like teaching students to source historical documents and then practicing doing that same kind of sourcing with modern documents, whether they were online or in the newspaper or, or on TV or whatever. So before we jump into the next question, first let me congratulate you on your upcoming publication in Theory and Research in Social Education. And so your article is titled, Can Students Evaluate Online Sources Learning from Assessments of Civic Online Reasoning? And that'll be coming up in a TRSE uh, issue coming out in 2018. Can you tell us about the research and, and some of your findings? Sure. So sort of like the title implies, the, the research investigates how young people evaluate social and political information online. So we know that young people increasingly turn to the internet as a source of information. In surveys in the last couple of years, young people have reported that they get up to 75% of their news online. They said that social media was their top source of information about the 2016 election. It's a, a huge sort of shift in where young people are, are turning for information. So they only get 25% of their news from soapboxes now? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Precisely 25%. <laughs> and that's Great in some ways, right? Because the internet, it's, it's complicated. We know, and Dan, you've certainly written about this. Um, the internet can widen the scope of stories that are told and who gets to tell them and change forms of political organization and action and democratize access to information, right? But it also means that we increasingly are the ones that have to evaluate the information that comes across our screens. We don't see the kinds of gatekeepers, for better or worse, um, that we've seen in traditional media. So we realized what a sort of huge shift this is and how, how much of the onus is being put on us to do the evaluations. And about three years ago, started designing assessments of young people's ability to evaluate social and political information. So our assessments are short and they show students actual online content, whether it's like a screenshot of a Facebook conversation or actually taking students to a website or tweet and then ask them a short question about their evaluation of it. And the study that's being published in Theory and Research and Social Education is based on the final administration of 15 of those tasks, middle school, high school, and college students across the country. So we often hear that students are digital natives 
And I personally Mm -hmm. hate the term. So I'm imagining, because they are born on the internet, according to this digital native thing, that they are really good at discerning at these tasks. Certainly the assumption that was made initially, lots of scholars have pushed back against that. And our findings certainly show that digital nativity is indeed a myth and not a, not a reality because we saw students across grade levels, right, middle school, high school, and college really struggling to successfully complete our assessments. So we organized the assessments into sort of three competencies. So they assess whether students can investigate sources of information, whether they can ask who's behind the information, whether they can ask what's the evidence and effectively sort of evaluate the evidence presented for a claim, and then whether they can ask what do other sources say? So can they verify or corroborate information across multiple sources? And across all those those three competencies, students, again, across grade levels really struggled to effectively evaluate information online. How close do you feel like the skills that you're teaching in the civic online reasoning kind of connect to the skills that Shag has been emphasizing with historical thinking? That's a great question. I think there's still a lot of work to be done to probe that. Certainly we see similarities. So there's some clear overlap right between who's behind the information and sourcing, which we know we've seen historians prioritizing, investigating who wrote a source, why they wrote it and how that influences the content of the source. And that, we think, is sort of the premier question, again, that that folks should ask about online information, prioritize investigating where information is coming from. So in that way, there's a really clear overlap, I think. There is, though, I think, difference in how we go about investigating sources. So obviously, when you're online, there's a lot of different resources available to you than historians have when they're in the archives with a historical document. So although some of the questions might be the same, I think the ways of investigating are can be different. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I read in an article you and Sam Weinberg wrote that historians actually didn't do great with these assessments, right? I don't know if it's, they use these ones or different ones you created, but they didn't do great with the online, civic online reasoning component which is kind of sad. And now we have a whole (laughs) army to retrain in civic online reasoning. It's true. Um, they weren't these exact tasks. They were more open-ended websites and things that we we sat historians and fact-checkers and a group of Stanford students down in front of and asked them questions. But we started that study thinking that historians be our experts and then sort of quickly had to reorganize and rethink uh, when we realized that they weren't doing quite as well as we expected. Do you mind telling us a little more about the task that you set up for both groups? Sure. For the study that's in theory and research and social education, again, we had 15 tasks. 10 of them were paper and pencil tasks, which I know sounds strange since we're talking about online reasoning. But we wanted to make assessments that were accessible to teachers, no matter what sort of technological capabilities they had in their classrooms. And thinking that teachers, even of younger students, might want to take on teaching these skills, even without students being online. And then five of the tasks are administered on Google Forms. So again, we put actual content in front of students and ask them questions about it. So for example, one of our tasks shows students, it's a paper and pencil task that we piloted with high school students. We show students a screenshot of a post from Imgur, the photo sharing website. And it's a picture of daisies that look sort of deformed. (laughs) And the title is Fukushima Nuclear Flowers. And then the poster says, not much more to say, this is what happens when flowers get nuclear birth defects. And then we just ask students if that's a strong source of evidence about conditions near the power plant and see what students 
do, right, to assess whether they can evaluate that as evidence, right, and sort of start to poke holes in all the problems in that source, right? First of all, that we have no idea who posted it. It's a photo sharing website where anybody can post photos. We have no proof that that photo is taken anywhere near the power plant. And even if we did, we have no, there's no proof of causality there, right? Like we don't know that the nuclear radiation from the power plant caused the daisies to look like that. But in fact, the overwhelming majority of students really struggled with that task. So about 75% of students thought the picture was strong evidence in some way or another, either like totally bought the picture and talked about how horrible the nuclear disaster must have been if it made flowers look like that, or said like, yeah, that photo is strong evidence. I want to see more because there certainly must be like other wildlife and human beings potentially who are affected by that if the flowers look like that. Looking at that example that you guys had, it really like bothered me because it made me think about kind of the interplay between reason and emotion, kind of our, our cognitive and affective, you know, ways of approaching it. Because you see something like that and you're like, I know there's nuclear problems that exist and it affects our world. So I kind of just emotionally want to agree with this picture, but there's like no evidence or no re way to know what this is. It reminded me of the type of thing I see online a lot that just gets passed around, whether it's on Facebook or Reddit or wherever people are passing it. And that's the type of thing I think schools just aren't ready for is like the pictures people are sharing with each other and how to evaluate those. Yeah, pictures and videos and infographics, right? We see over and over students being really taken in by those sort of things and just sort of like reading them as evidence no matter what they are, right? So clearly, I, I think you're right. Schools haven't really caught up with the sort of pervasiveness of, of really powerful visual evidence that, again, flies pretty freely online. Because we don't, I don't know if we do as much with the visual evidence. We've often worked so much with, you know, print textual evidence in in history and we do some with like political cartoons but this is a totally different thing it's like a picture with somebody's caption on it mm -hmm. and even text though we see students being taken in by like statistics or quotes from authoritative figures again sort of like reading things that they see as evidence and maybe have been taught our evidence in school right because they are but not being able to sort of critically evaluate and not first and foremost looking to the sources of evidence as a way to evaluate them so that was the cool piece from the uh, from the TRC article. What task did you give the historians? I'm really curious about the army of historians and and why they're not why they need help. Sure. So it was about an hour long interview that we did. So they did several different tasks across the the course uh, of the hour with us. But one of them, for example, we showed participants a website called and this is also a, actually a task that we did with college students in this article. Uh, we showed them a an article from the website minimumwage.com, which looks like a, a pretty reliable website if something can look reliable, right? It's like it a has a dot com website. But it means nothing. It links to another organization called the Employment Policies Institute, which is a dot org. They both say they're nonprofit research organizations. So really, if you stay within the website and read the article, which links to things like the New York Times, you never know where the information is actually coming from. But in fact, if you leave minimumwage.com, go outside the site, Google Employment Policies Institute or minimumwage.com, you find out that it's actually an organization that's run by a public relations firm that represents among other industries, the hotel and restaurant industries, right? So they're making an argument that the minimum wage should not be increased, uh, but coming from 
what I see as a real conflict of interest in representing the hotel and restaurant industry's opinions on the minimum wage. So we saw historians and Stanford students really stay within the site, right? Read the article carefully, maybe go to the about page of the website to see what it said about itself, but very rarely leave the website. Whereas fact checkers, and these were fact checkers at major news and fact checking organizations, left the website really quickly. And like I said, Googled the name of the organization to pretty quickly find out what other sources said about it and realized that it was actually a front group for the hotel and restaurant industries. And so what that skill you just talked about, the idea of pulling up another page to research the organization, so you all have called that lateral reading. Can you explain that civic online reasoning skill that people may need? Sure. Again, I said one of our competency questions was who's behind the information. Again, if you're prioritizing asking that question and investigating it, um, then one way to, to quickly and effectively find an answer to who's behind the information is to read laterally. So if you're on a website you haven't seen before or on you know the Twitter feed of someone you don't know, to, to leave that, to go outside the site, quickly search for the name of the person or the sponsoring organization. So to open tabs on lateral or horizontal access, that's why we call it lateral reading, to see what other sources have to say about it. This is tremendous research and far better than the study that I I came up with where we put a soapbox in the town square and somebody said something and students had to either give it a huzzah if they thought it was true or tar and feather if they thought it was false. That didn't actually make it through IRB, so I won't finish that <laughs> study. During the 2016 election, trying to engage in conversations with people. And the thing that drove me crazy was when people would bring in sources that were clearly problematic, weren't the information wasn't well sourced, it didn't come from a source that we should be using to learn about issues. And then I had to spend all my time just proving their sources, and it was draining to do so. And so it's really interesting to think about, I wonder how we can change people's, not just their critical consumption habits and ways of thinking, but their sharing habits. I don't know. Is that the type of thing? Have you guys started to think about that too? I mean, certainly I think conversations need to happen about sharing information, but I think our priority is for people to start to be able to have conversations about sources, right? To start to say like, okay, before I share information, I'm I'm going to prioritize knowing where it's from and knowing it's a credible source and being able to have conversations about what makes something a credible source um, so that we're not having arguments about content based on, you know, unfounded sources. Because certainly there's arguments about content to be had and about politics to be had, and we should be having those arguments based on sound facts and evidence and not terrible sources. Now that you've done the study, what takeaways can you give to classroom teachers or college professors? So I think the first one you already brought up, which is don't be intimidated by what what you might assume is students' skill uh, at evaluating digital information. So again, I, hopefully the digital native myth is dying, but we still see students who are really adept right, and quick with their phones and with, you know, texting and switching from app to app. And often we can assume that if they're good at that, then they must be good at evaluating the information in those places. But uh, our study and, and other studies, right, have shown that that's just not the case. And students really need our help. So I think that's sort of the first thing I would say is don't be intimidated by students' digital fluency and realize that they really do need help and support in this area. 
And then the second thing I would say is just take this on a little bit at a time. You know, I know social studies teachers have far too much to teach, and this might feel like one more thing on top of a list of a lot of other things. But I think this is incredibly important as the last year and the 2016 election have showed us to take on teaching even in small bits. So take, you know, 10 minutes of your classroom time, give students one of our tasks and then have a conversation about it or model how you might approach doing the task and sort of think creatively about the ways that it might fit into what you're already teaching, whether you're a government teacher and the the content aligns or you're a history teacher and you're teaching a particularly sort of contentious historical topic where there might be some online misinformation that you could get into or whether students are writing research papers and you're teaching research skills. I think there's a lot of potential connections to social studies classrooms and you don't need to feel like you need to do a full unit on it at first, right? Just starting to take it on in small pieces and doing a little bit at a time, I think is a great first step. Even in history, this is relevant. What historical information we find online, like you said, I think Howard Rheingold brought up the example of, probably others have too, of I think it was martinlutherking.com, which was actually a site created by a white supremacist group to share their views of Martin Luther King, but like students could easily get on it and, and use it in a report or something like that. And so teaching students again to go look, um, it doesn't take much to figure out that that's a bad source, but students need practice in, in suspending their judgment and taking the time doing their lateral reading as you suggest to do that. Can you tell us a little bit more about what's available on the SHEG website that teachers can use? Sure. On our website, which is shegsheg.samford.edu, we have, it's actually an integrated website now with sections for reading like a historian, beyond the bubble. And then there's a section for civic online reasoning, which is what we're, we're calling this work about evaluating social and political information online. So in that section of the website, there's about 20 of these tasks that we've developed. So a mix of both paper and pencil, and then Google Forms that you can make a copy of for yourself. And then there's also rubrics and sample student responses for all of those tasks, as well as sort of introductory information about the task and what it assesses. So we hope that those will be really useful tools, not just for assessment, but for teaching, doing one of those tasks as a warm up in class. And then, like I said, you know, having a conversation about it or having students work in groups can be a really useful classroom activity. So educators, there's no excuses. They've got stuff ready for you. So make sure to get to the Shag website and use those resources because they're ready to go and they're really helpful. I've already used some of them myself and I love them. Great. Good to hear. Well, thanks, Sarah, for chatting with us today. Thanks so much for having me on, guys. It was fun. Where can our listeners find you and your work online? Our website, like I said, is sheg.sheg.stanford.edu. We're on Twitter, sheg underscore Stanford. Or if you search for us on Facebook, just the Stanford History Education Group. And social media is the place where we publicize when we have new lessons and assessments going online. So following us there is a good idea if you're interested. Fantastic. We'll definitely get all of that included in the show note, including references to the TRSE article. Once it's out, we'll have that up on the site and other articles that we mentioned. We'll get those all in the show notes. So thank you again for joining us, and we'll definitely continue the discussion online and in other spaces. Great. Thanks so much. Squares near you. (laughs) Yes. I'll be on my soapbox. Excellent. Well, good, good. Hopefully they have some out there if you can. (laughs) I'm sure I can find one. That's Stanford. They're so good. At the Visions of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun, creative in education, or you just want to chat, tweet us at Visions of Ed, or hit us up on the Facebook. And if you haven't already, and really, why haven't you, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, 
And anywhere your listening needs are met. And if you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off. Thank you.